Today's gospel reading is from Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 3 and 11 through 32. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, and he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country and there squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still, a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard the music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who had devoured your property with prostitutes, you you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead, and he is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the Gospel of the Lord.
For the epistle reading this morning, we return to the book of Hebrews. We're in chapter 13, uh, verses 1 through 6. If you're following along uh, in your Pew Bible, it's on page 1197. And this will be our sermon text as well. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. My name's Chris. I'm a pastoral intern here. And uh, today I have the privilege of standing beside you as God engages us both with his word. So let's pray. Father Father God, I know that your word is true. I'm certain of it. All I have to do is say it. Please help me. And please bless your people this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, we've been in Hebrews for quite a long time now. Um, This is the final chapter, Hebrews 13. And we've learned quite a lot along the way, I think. The author up to this point has spent all this time making quite a convincing argument, I think, uh, for why we should not walk away from our faith, from such a great salvation as this, he says. Uh, Just a little review. Uh, Early we learned that we have a better messenger than angels, which is Jesus, and he brings us a better message than the law, which we cannot hope to keep. He's a better leader than Moses, and he leads us to a better promise. Now, the Jewish Christians uh, who the author is writing to uh, seem to be receiving some uh, pretty poor counsel from the Jewish priests among them uh, who want them to reject Christ and to return to these old ways. So uh, the author of Hebrews includes in chapters 5 through 7 this this revelation of how Christ is actually our great high priest, how he supersedes all all other priests, and so he undercuts that that bad advice. Other priests have to offer sacrifices for their own sins, and and they die because of their sin, and Jesus uh, does not. He is sinless, and he lives forever. The author then moves on to use a lot of this covenantal language after that point, and he describes the covenant or the pact that we are in with Jesus, uh, which far exceeds what's called the Old Covenant. And that takes us all the way through chapter 12, really, uh, where Mike last week was preaching to us about those two different mountains which represent those covenants, Mount Sinai and uh, Mount Zion. 
he says uh, that, uh, among other things, uh, this covenant speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. I've always liked that. And all of a sudden, it seems like in chapter 13, finally, where we get here today, he kind of goes off on a tangent a little bit. In verse 1, he says, let brotherly love continue. And he talks about all these rules that he'd like you to keep, like um, caring for strangers and, you know, honoring your marriage. And it seems like a strange departure from this, this tight argument that's come before in these first 12 chapters. Uh, scholars have even said that they think that somebody else came along and just wrote the conclusion to this book. Um, so what's going on here in chapter 13? Where did this carefully crafted argument go? Well, I think if, if we look closely here, you'll see that chapter 13 does indeed cling quite closely to the rest of the book. First off, in verse 1, uh, you have the word brother mentioned. I'm going to mention that word a lot today. Uh, this is the word that scripture uses for us. Uh, if you'd like to stick brothers and sisters in there in your memory, please feel free to do that if I forget to. Um, so this word brother, it's mentioned quite often in Hebrews, at least once for every chapter. Um, Jesus is described as our brother, uh, and we are described in relation to one another as brothers. Uh, but also, we see a few verses back in chapter 12, uh, verse 24, Abel was mentioned. Now, Abel is the brother of Cain, remember? Uh, and Cain killed his brother, Abel. And when God asked him about it, Cain said, Am I my brother's keeper? So this is the idea that the author of Hebrews has now brought in, this idea of a special bond of brotherhood between those uh, who believe in Christ. The author's point here is that, yes, indeed, we are our brother's keepers. And that means that we are responsible as a family in the Lord to care for one another and to keep one another from straying from the family ideals. Remember, these, these Hebrew brothers and sisters... Um, to whom the author is writing, are in danger of straying. That's why he writes to them. And so the author encourages this family unit to care for one another and to keep one another from straying. So verse 1 says, uh, let brotherly love continue. And so if you look at your text, uh, you can imagine that as kind of like a headline. And then verses 2 through 5 will be our little bullet points underneath that. That'll kind of help you follow along. So if we are our brother's keepers, what does that mean for our lives and why must we keep or care for our brothers and sisters? So, as we go, keep an eye out for our two main points here. We'll hear how we must keep our brothers and sisters and how we are kept. Okay? How we must keep and how we are kept. So, our first point, how we must keep. Being your brother's keeper involves more than simply caring for them, although it certainly does include that. It also involves rebuke sometimes. Older brothers teach younger brothers all the time. In the context of Hebrews, it involves keeping your brothers from sinning or straying. In fact, Hebrews, as the whole book, does this. We've talked about this. It's designed to keep his brothers from straying. So, um, the author shows us in this passage what I'll call two cares and two snares, or two ways to care for your brothers and sisters, uh, and two snares, two ways that we can be led astray. So this is how we must keep our brothers and sisters. Verses 2 and 3 are our two cares, and verses 4 and 5 are our two snares. So let's start with verses 2 and 3. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. 
Okay, so this is our first specific command, hospitality to strangers. And, and the author includes this as kind of a, a little reminder at the end. He does this. He has little reminders or reasons to obey attached to each one of these verses, if you look. And we'll get into each of those. So the reason attached to this one, this first reason is, you know, make sure you don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers because some have entertained angels that way. It's kind of a, almost a spooky thing to say. Now, as soon as we read that, I know if this happens in me, I am distracted. I am wondering, have I ever met an angel? Have I, maybe I've spoken to one? Maybe that, when I gave that dollar, was that an angel? Now, please, let's, so listen, let's, let's not get distracted, okay? The author's not saying that you will be encountering undercover angels every day in your life, so you better watch out. This is not Santa where you better watch out how you're acting or else elves will report to you and you know, you'll get a lump of coal. This is not a threat. This is not saying you are under surveillance. Okay, put that out of your mind. So what is it? Why does he mention angels? That's a weird thing to do, right? Well, it's actually a reference to the life of Abraham back in Genesis. This is a reminder of a shared family history, a treasured family story that these brothers would recognize and respond to. That's why he says it. I'll show you. If you look at your Bibles, I'm not sure if the Pew Bibles do this, but if you have a study Bible, they have these little tiny letters next to some of the words. And if you look at uh, verse 2, next to the word some, there should be a little letter there that tells you this is just a reference from Genesis 18 and 19, where the angels came to Abraham, and he showed them hospitality. And he was promised that he would have a son, Isaac. So these, these people that came to him were promise carriers. They bore that promise to him, and he showed them hospitality. So instead of threatening you by saying angels are watching you to see whether you'll show them hospitality, he's pointing you to a greater reality, a greater story of which you are a part. So he does this in verse 3 as well. He says, remember you are part of a body. So this passage really isn't developing a theology of angels uh, so much as the author is trying to say uh, something else, a reminder of this family story. This is about brotherly love. This word hospitality is actually a form of the same word, brotherly love. Uh, it's Philadelphia. That's where we get the name for the city, a city of brotherly love. Uh, the word for hospitality is philoxenius, which is love for the stranger. So they share that philo root, which means love. So rather than saying, do not neglect to show hospitality, it's literally saying, do not withhold your love from a stranger. Verse 3 has the same theme, actually. It says, remember those who are in prison or who are mistreated, just as if you were one of them, because, in fact, you are. You're all part of the same body. So we see in verses 2 and 3, uh, we, we have two ways that we must keep our brothers, two ways to care for our brothers who are strangers, prisoners, or mistreated even for their faith. This is what the author hopes to encourage in his readers, a love that cares for the brothers, that keeps them. I remember this is one of my favorite uh, memories here at Grace and Peace. It was our first Sunday. I was sitting right there behind Vic with my wife and uh, my son Titus. I was three months old at the time. And when service ended, uh, this woman with a seemingly infectious joy approached us and she said, Hi! My name is Sarah Oldham. It's good to meet you, and I'm glad you're here. <laughs> Would you like to come to lunch with me afterward? <laughs> it 
were, we were overwhelmed by her kindness, and even though we were strangers to her, we didn't know anybody aside from Thurman and Mike at that point, uh, we felt so welcomed by our sister in Christ. What about our brothers and sisters who are mistreated or imprisoned? I'm willing to bet that if you were to guess how many Christians um, were in this position, you'd probably come a little low on the estimate. The Center for Global Christianity at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary reports that an average of 90,000 Christians around the world are martyred each and every year. There's an organization called Voice of the Martyrs that tracks persecution which even falls short of death, um, and they estimate that this occurs to about a million Christians every year, some form of persecution. <clears throat> last, last time I was up here, I preached to you from Hebrews 4, and we talked about the 21 martyrs who just a few years ago uh, were marched out onto a beach and killed. This may uh, be hard data to hear. I understand that, especially in America. Uh, for whatever reason, our media uh, is allergic to publishing any information about Christians being persecuted. But should it really surprise us that much that Christians are persecuted? Jesus says in John 15, so these are red letters, don't ever forget that the world actually hates you. No servant is greater than their master. If they persecuted me, they will surely persecute you. 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed everyone, that's you, who desires to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. You have your guarantee. So this morning as we hear from God's word that we should actually be caring for our brothers and sisters who are imprisoned or mistreated because of their faith, if we don't actually even know anyone like that, that might be an indication that we are not exercising the kind of brotherly love that this passage is calling us to. Here, we're commanded to remember them just as if we were in prison with them. He says, we're in the same body with them. Imagine if someone came up to you and they stomped your foot so hard that it broke. I believe you'd have something to say about that. The rest of your limbs would would have something to do about that. Your arms would come up to defend and protect, to bandage. Your eyes would be assessing the damage. The other leg might begin to take weight from that leg. Your mouth will utter prayers for healing. Brothers and sisters, we are one body, and we must care for those among us who are imprisoned or mistreated because of their faith all around the world. Maybe that means that you educate yourself on suffering brothers and sisters around the world. Maybe that means that you regularly pray for them. These are easier things to do. Maybe it means you take the responsibility to bring them up in conversation with other brothers and sisters so that we can do, as this text suggests, and remember them consistently. This is what it means to remember them, to show brotherly love and to be our brother's keeper. And we know we can do those things successfully. We're not out here on a limb. We've seen these things before. They've been done to us first by our Savior. We were strangers to this covenant, to this promise, as Ephesians tells us. But Jesus showed us hospitality. He invited us and he brought us to the table. We were imprisoned by sin, but Christ set us free. He made us a part of of his own body, and he remembers us. 
So we're familiar with this particular brand of brotherly love. Christ says in Matthew 25, I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was hungry and you fed me. I was in prison and you visited me. And they asked him, when did we ever do that? And he replied, truly I say to you, as you did it for even the least of my brothers, you have done it to me. Therefore, we must be our brother's keepers by caring for them. Now, remember, we were talking about uh, how we keep our brothers. We we're talking about uh, how we keep and how we are kept. Those are our two main points, right? And we said there are two cares and two snares. So we've looked at two ways to care for our brothers. Let's look at the two snares in verses 4 through 5. Verse 4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. And verse 5 says, Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. So you might think, what does marriage and money have to do at all with brotherly love? Again, perhaps this is out of left field. Let's, let's see. We are our brother's keepers, and that means not only caring for them, but also keeping them, bringing them back, causing them uh, to remember who they are a part of. Now, immediately what I'd like us to notice here is that this doesn't say honor your marriage. It could say that. The next verse says that. It says keep your life free from money. It doesn't say honor your marriage, but instead it says let marriage be held in honor among all. So we recognize that this isn't just a command for, for us, although it is also that. Instead, this is a call to honor the marriages of others in our body as well. One obvious implication of this is that if someone is married, that means they're off limits. It's your job as their brother or sister to, as the text says, let the marriage bed be undefiled. Now, that may seem like a, a no-brainer for us. We're all Christians. We're here but in our time, it's not uncommon for us to think that maybe we're exceptions to the rule. Maybe our situation is a little bit different. Some people genuinely think that if they're unhappy in their marriage, then it's, then it's simply okay to, to cheat instead. Or they think, maybe I'm just built different than others. Let me tell you, brother or sister in Christ, if that reasoning has entered your mind, our God is addressing you here, and he's telling you there are no exceptions. He says all must honor marriage and keep the marriage bed undefiled, and that includes each one of us. There's a warning, even, which says God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. So if, that, if that's you this morning, this text simply says, beware. Do not stray from the family of God. Turn, go to your spouse who is your brother or sister in Christ and repent. I love the text that we heard earlier. One day in the courts of the Lord is better than a thousand elsewhere. It is better to be in this family. Now for everyone else, maybe you haven't entertained that thought. I, I suspect that's, that may be most of you. But maybe you know someone who has. Or maybe you know who someone, someone who's just struggling in their marriage right now. Maybe they've had an argument recently with their spouse. Or maybe they've vented to you 
uh, a little bit too strongly, use some words that are perhaps dishonoring to their marriage. As our brother's keepers, this text is telling us that we should be supporting our brothers and our sisters who are experiencing any kind of struggle whatsoever in their marriage. We may need to call them back to honoring their marriage. This is what it means to be your brother's keeper, to love them, to show care for them. I had a brother who called me several nights ago. Um, You guys don't know him, but uh, he called me after a huge fight with his wife in which they both said some pretty terrible things to one another, things that they wish they could take back, hurtful things. And so he left and he went for a drive and he gave me a call. Now, among other things, I told him, brother, it's, it's your job to go home to apologize to your wife. It doesn't matter right now, in this moment, whether she apologizes or not. It's your job to honor your marriage, to give up winning, to bring peace to your household. And just like that's his job, it's my job to tell him that as his brother, to see that he honors his marriage. So we are of the same body, and his, his wife is my sister. He and I are both called to honor our marriages among our brothers and sisters in Christ. Maybe, maybe marriage uh, isn't where you're tempted to stray. Maybe instead you're tempted uh, by the love of money, as verse 5 says. Or maybe you know a brother or sister who has been tempted in that way. So right here, let's point out the fact that a, a, a love of money stands in direct contrast with brotherly love. These are two opposing types of love. There is a way in which you can love your brother by serving them with your money, but that's not what we're talking about here. There is a love of money, and there is a love of the brothers. <clears throat> now, if someone loves money, if they're selfish or self-serving with their funds, they can't then also be loving to their brothers. So here the author is telling us that the love of money actually stands at odds with brotherly love. <clears throat> but even more than that, his main focus here is that it is a powerful distractor from faith in Christ. 1 Timothy 6.10 even tells us that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So this is the crux of the issue for the author of Hebrews. Because remember, the author of Hebrews has just spent 12 whole chapters trying to convince these Jewish Christians not to stray from the faith. He says, instead, be content with what you have. 1 Timothy 6 says that godliness with contentment is great gain. You're not losing anything if you give up your love of money. You're actually gaining. So for our purposes, we must understand that we must protect ourselves from being uh, lovers of money, and we must be wary of our brothers and sisters doing likewise. We must be there to keep them, to help them wander uh, back to the path of faith. I'll tell you a really simple story about this. A man was selling his house, and he chose as his lawyer for the sale a brother in Christ, a fellow believer. Now, when the inspections for the house came back, it turned out that there were some things that needed to be repaired, some pretty big things, and it was going to cost quite a bit to do it. The man selling the house noticed that legally the inspections weren't done by the time that they were required, and so they weren't legally binding. There was a little loophole he could get around, right? Think about if this was your house, if there was a lot of money at stake. What would you do? Well, the man goes to his lawyer, 
who remember is a Christian like him. And the lawyer says, we believe that we ought to love one another, don't we? We must do unto others as we would have done to us. So in that moment, the seller was, was tempted to stray from the path to love money instead of loving his brother. But his brother kept him. He reminded him. He brought him back to the path. This is the type of body that we've been made part of. This is the family we've been called into. So these are the ways that we must keep our brothers and sisters in Christ. We must keep ourselves and our brothers and sisters from dishonoring their marriages and from loving money. Now remember, in the act of being our brother's keeper, the author has given us two cares and two snares. So that's what we've looked at in in the first uh, five verses here. Two ways to care for our, uh, or keep our brothers. And uh, they have reasons and reminders attached to each one. So let's look at chapter five at the reason that he lists here. Why must we do this? He says, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. This brings us to our second point how we are kept by our big brother Jesus. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's, that's a beautiful statement. Now, this statement, uh, and actually the rest of our passage here, they're all actually kind of uh, pasted together Old Testament quotations. But what's so interesting here is that this statement uses what's called emphatic negation, which is just a, a fancy term for saying there is no way in the Greek that you can say this any stronger. It's literally not possible. I will never leave you nor forsake you. No, not ever, not even in a million years, we might say. This is the basis for brotherly love. This is where we learn what it looks like. This is what Hebrews calls our source, our big brother Jesus. Hebrews 2.11, it says, He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. What do you, what do you think of that? That Jesus calls you a brother or a sister. The perfect God-man. He's not ashamed to call you a brother or a sister. It is Jesus who sanctifies us, who keeps his brothers from sin. He is the keeper of his brothers. And we know from the context of verse 5 that this is the reason that he gives, a powerful reason, powerful enough to keep us from the love of money, to keep us from dishonoring our marriages. I would say powerful enough to keep us from all sin. It's precisely because Jesus has said, I will never ever leave you nor forsake you that we can have confidence, as verse 6 says. Now, it's interesting that the English translations choose this word confidence here. That's from the Latin confide, or with faith. That's what it's speaking about. Our confidence, our faith, arises from the fact that Jesus declares loud enough for everyone to hear that he will never leave us nor forsake us. How can we be sure of that, though? It's a nice thing to hear, but how can we know? If you look at Matthew 27, 46, the same word that's used here for never forsaking you is the same word that Christ used uh, on the cross when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We know for a fact 
that God will never leave us or forsake us because Christ was forsaken in our place. God turned away from his son so that he would never, ever, ever turn away from you. So we have faith. We have confidence, which is powerful to turn us back to faith, to Christ. This is the issue that the author hopes to address. The Jewish Christians were turning away. He says, look at the dedication, at the love with which you are loved. He will never forsake you. He will never leave you. He will surely keep his brothers. So, in verse 6, it says, Therefore we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? That is a confident declaration indeed. Some may say idealistic. Who among us has, has really lived life that way, walked in that perspective? I think it's probably more accurate to say that all of us have moments where we walk in this perspective. We can remember points in our lives where we've been able to walk in that perspective. What, what can man do to me? But this is one of those things that's true whether you're believing it right now or not. I want you to know that. Sometimes we believe these things strongly. We have confidence in them. Sometimes we don't. But it honestly doesn't matter either way. It's still true. You can rely on this. You can believe it. I call this declaration, this perspective, I call it unassailable hope. This is what the author wants to gift to his readers, unassailable hope. The kind that's only found in the security that the God of the universe is your keeper, your helper, that he is your brother, and that he loves you. So this statement is precisely designed to eliminate all of our fears. In 1 John 4.18 it says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love, the kind of love that we have right here, casts out all of our fears. However, it's not as if these fearful things just go away in our lives. Rather, instead, we are called to faith over fear, faith in the midst of our fears. We are called to confidence in an unshakable kingdom, as Mike described last week. Though we, though we ourselves may actually be tossed to and fro, we may be unsure. Our Savior is not. He is unshakable. He is powerful to keep us, and he is our brother, and he does so. This reminds me of the story of Jesus, uh, as we close here, uh, appearing on the road to Emmaus. After his resurrection, he appeared to two of his disciples, and uh, he appeared to them as a stranger. These two disciples were actually, they were running away from Jerusalem. Jesus had just been killed, and they were afraid that they'd be next on the list. So they were afraid. They were running for their lives. However, these two disciples, full of fear, confused, and without hope in that moment, they showed hospitality, brotherly love to this stranger. They invite him to their house to stay even, and they feed him. And in the very act of showing brotherly love to this stranger, Jesus reveals that it was actually him the whole time. And what is, this, what is the response of these two disciples? What do they do with that information? It says, they immediately ran back into Jerusalem, into the mouth of the lion, in the middle of the night, suddenly without fear, without confusion, and with an unassailable hope. 
And they told everyone who would listen that Jesus is alive indeed. These disciples had no fear. What can man do to me? I just had dinner with the guy who defeated death. Jesus was forsaken. Thank you. Amen. Jesus was forsaken so that you wouldn't be. He tasted death so that you can live forever. He is your brother. He is your helper, and he is your keeper. And his perfect love is powerful enough to cast out all of your fears. Trust the one who promises never to leave you, never to forsake you. No, not ever, not in a million years. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your grace and your love that you've given us in your word today. I pray that today as we go to communion, just like the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, that that you would be known to us in the breaking of the bread and that we would go forth from here with full assurance of faith, as the author of Hebrews says, with an unassailable hope for truly what, what can man do to us. You are our helper. You are our keeper. Amen.